0: Yeah, we good this morning? There is no doubt that when they turn those lights on, it blinds you, right? There's no doubt. So I'll tell you something I just learned. I didn't realize that they sold books on Amazon for 25 cents. (laughs) Good grief. I'll buy that one for 25 cents. Wayne Gruden is an awesome theologian, man. He wrote a book called Systematic Theology. And uh, man, if he's selling stuff online for a quarter, I would buy it, right? So hey, here's the deal. My name's Chris. Um, Good to be with you, man. Always a pleasure for me to teach the Word. Um, if you're walking with us, if you've been with us for a season, you know we've kind of went back to the more initiative, like we're just kind of revisiting the more initiative, right? Now, before we walk too much into this, I just want to kind of talk to you just a second about, I'm not giving a talk on giving today, all right? I'm not going to talk down that path. I, I want to I take you down a different road if I could, all right? And so, man, I got a lot to do, got a lot to try to tackle in 30 minutes so I think we're going to go like an hour and 15 today, probably for sure. And so I'm just going to invite the Lord to come sit with us, if that's all right. Father, God, you are good. Lord, I would ask your spirit to come sit with us, so that you would be thick here. And Father, we would only say the things that need to be said, that hearts would be open. Or that's only something that you can do. No man gets that for fear of us thinking we're more than what we should be. So, just I would ask you to come. Hang with us. Lord, your word is clear that we're two or three gathered in your name, and you are here. So, Lord, we would ask you just to get twice as heavy as you normally do. Protect my mouth from saying something ignorant, or handling your scriptures wrong. Lord open the ears of the people so that we will be vessels of your glory. And everyone in this house said, Amen, Amen. So yeah, so if you if you ever read the word, man, like <clears throat> if you're ever in it, this thing makes some assumptions about your life, right? Now, when I make some assumptions about your life, that, that whole story is true. Like when you assume something about somebody, you're usually wrong. Happened to me on Thursday. I made the wrong assumption about somebody, right? But when the Word makes an assumption, it's accurate, right? And so I'm just going to take you down just a little bit here. Like in Matthew 6, like we're, gonna t- we're just going to play with this for just a second about some assumptions the Word makes in your life, All right. So if you're in Matthew 6, starting verse 1, it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Verse 3, But when you give to the needy, dot, 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 right? And so as I read these passages to you, man, I want you to listen for the repetition in the words. Whenever you hear repetition in the word, it's the Lord saying, I need you to understand something. Okay, move on to verse five. It says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. Verse six, but when you pray, dot, dot, dot. Travel down the road a little bit. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Verse 17, but when you fast, dot, dot, dot. Okay? So if you're following with me, then you understand that the word just made some assumptions about your life. Like it assumes that you fast, that you pray, and that you give. Like it makes this assumption. Okay, now here's why I don't want to talk about those things is because they are just symptoms of something greater. Like all of this outward things that we do, they are symptoms of something much greater in us, right? It's like if I was to visit you in jail, the fact that you're in jail is, is, is not it. There's a heart behind why you're in jail. And so here's what I've learned in my last couple years of doing this. I used to preach for your happiness, Like I used to teach for your happiness to get you fired up about Christ and and make you happy and then you walk out this door and then your phone rings man and there's something bad that happens and then you've totally lost everything that we just talked about and I've learned if I quit preaching towards your happiness and start preaching towards your joy it'll change things and so my role here is not to preach for your happiness it's not to make your ears happy it's to preach for your joy So when that phone call comes, man, your joy never gets robbed, right? And so what I say today may not make you the happiest person in the world, but it will be for your joy if you will learn to use it, right? Let me kind of walk you through how this works before we get into the word. When I came to Christ in 99, I was 24 years old. You know my story. I was an alcoholic, had all this stuff going on, came to Christ, right? The first Sunday I go to church, Like for real, like the first time I go to celebrate what Jesus had done in my life, it looked just like this. It was a church almost hitting 500 people. And man, I walked in the door saying, we're going to change the world. Like the Lord had rewired everything in my heart. Like I, I got to the point where I didn't like people anymore. Like I was mad all the time. Like My heart had grown cold and hard. And I was full of wrath coming out of me. But when he got a hold of me, man, I was crying all the time. Like, everywhere I went, I was crying. I'd hear a song, I'd cry. Somebody would tell me what Jesus had done, I'd cry, right? Somebody immersed in sin, I would cry. Like, I was crying all the time. And I walked into that church, and I'm like, man, I'm home. Like, we're going to change the world. Like, if these people see the world the way that I see it, we're going to change the world. Man, and I got involved there. Got around some great men, started growing up. About 18 months into my journey, man, I get a knock on the door. A good friend of mine named Tommy Archer was my peer, was growing up with him. He said, man, I need to have a conversation with you. I was like, man, come on in. It was unexpected, unannounced, just kind of showed up. It was a Saturday night. He said, tomorrow at this time, this church that you know is going to split. Growing up Catholic, I had no language for this. Full of love for Christ. I'm like, sweet, let me help what do you want me to do? He said, no, like, it's going to split right down the middle. Like, the pastoral staff of six or seven people are going to stand up on the stage at five o'clock and they're going to walk out the door. And I said, what? What? Like, how can this be? And he proceeded to tell me some stuff that had happened behind the scenes, which I was oblivious to, because I was an infant in Christ. Man, I was in that stage where, man, I just loved everybody and thought everybody loved each other. And so I'm like, well, all I know to do is fast and pray. And so me and my wife, we did. I was convinced the Lord was going to stop it. Convinced. Five o'clock rolls around the following day, I'm pleading with the Lord. I mean, I'm on my knees as the pastors are walking up, and I'm like, don't let this happen. Smite their mouth. Whatever it takes, don't let this happen. It happened. Pastors got up on the stage. They walked out the door. Church splits down the middle. You want to see some ugly stuff happen in a church? Wait till 24 hours later. Right? Saw some terrible things. During the course of my infancy with Christ, there was this guy named Dennis, and he took a liking to me. And so he'd take me and play golf, and man, we, I would just have a good time. He was, he was about 10 years older than me. In his walk with Christ, he was about a year ahead of me. And so I was just learning from him as best as I knew how. He had, made, he had become my friend. And so during the course of this tragedy, he sits me down at Quiznos. He tells me why he's leaving. And he's like, what do you want to do? I'm an infant in Jesus. I'm like, man, you're the only relationship that I have that's just, that's just where I'm growing up. I'm going to follow you. Didn't know yet how to leave my family. Like, I hadn't learned this stuff. And so these five or six pastors, they launch a new church, Right? Under the guise of disunity, but it looks good on top, right? As this thing begins to go, it goes about six months and it grows to about 150, 160 people, like it's looking like it's gonna be something really neat. About six months later, the lead pastor turns into an alcoholic. I'm like, how can you like how is the love of Christ in you? Like, how are you preaching messages and doing this behind the scenes? Like, how is this happening? And so he just kind of rides off into the sunset, right? So now this, this five-man pastoral, six-man pastoral staff is down to five. We travel along a little bit further, starts getting a little bit rocky. And then something immensely heinous happens. My friend Dennis, who's a pastor on staff at the church, his wife has an affair with another one of the pastors on church at that church you want to talk about what that does to a church of 150 people? It splits it right down the middle again. And this time it's worse. You know why? Because I'm right in the middle of it. I don't see my friend Dennis for like three or four days after all this goes down. I show up at his house. His wife had called me, wanted to know if I would come over. I'm like, absolutely. I go into his bedroom. He's got all the windows blacked out. And he's cry, like he's like sobbing so much He can't even lift himself up out of the bed. And so I pick him up. I'm sitting on the side of the bed, and he just falls on top of me. And I hold him, uncontrollably weeping. And all I can remember him saying is how bad he hurts. He just kept saying, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. He weighed probably like 110 pounds. So I laid him down, walked out the door. It was springtime, so it's beautiful outside. And his wife is in there sweeping the floor, just as bubbly as she can be. And she said, "We're going to get through this. It's just a bump in the road. We're going to get through this." And I looked at her and I was like, "Have you seen him?" Like, "Have you seen him?" Like, "Have you seen what's happened to him like he's a shell of a man? And that story just gets worse with time. Like, I don't have time to follow you through it. It just gets worse. And so here's my question to you. What do you do if that happens to me? What happens if we have to stand up here next week and say, hey, man, Pastor Matt screwed up. What do we stand up here in three months and say, Pastor Casey's screwed up? What does that do to you? Where do you go? How do you respond to that? As this story plays out, my father-in-law would come to me and he's like, Chris, you got to jump. Like, this church is not good. Like, it's, it's not good. Like, there's too much going on. I've been, I've been a Christian now for three and a half years, and I've seen more heinous stuff happen inside the church than I'd seen outside. Like, these people are acting worse than people who don't know Christ. It'll mess you up. My father-in-law was saying, you need to take your family out and get them into a healthy church. The, th- the three reigning pastors pull me in. They're like, here's the deal. We're in debt 80 grand. We got nothing to show for it. And it looks like we're going to have about 20 people showing up on Sunday. Through the course of this, man, like it becomes the biggest stress of your life, Right? One night I'm laying in bed, I get up. You know, you ever got where, that, where the Lord just kind of wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, I got something to teach you? You ever had that happen to you before? Well, he does it one morning, 3 a.m. I get up, go into the study, open the Word, start reading about Paul. He's like, look, I'm the worst of the worst. People ridicule me, they mock me. He goes, on the end of the train, he goes, I'm the last guy, and everybody ridicules me. And his last sentence is this, I urge you to imitate me. Got Rachel up next to us, and man, we're called to stay here. Like, we're we're called to stay and make this thing go. She being awesome is like, let's do this. So, the first thing I know to do, like, nobody's walking with me, like, I'm just on my own. Don't know if I can trust the pastors that I'm with. I love them, but I'm like, y'all guys are making some really bad decisions. And so, I decided to take over the men's ministry. It's our first men's retreat. Reading the word in Matthew eighteen is like, man, if you got anger in your heart, you got to deal with it, or the Lord's not going to take care of you. Like He's not going to be able to work through you. So you know what I did? I picked up the phone and I called Dennis's wife. Man, the pastor that was part of our church. He he had bolted. He bolted by the way as well. Now remember, man, this was back when my I, I'm a scared little shepherd. So I pick up the phone, my hand is shaking. He answers the phone. I'm not going to tell you his name. But I just said, Hey, I said, here's the deal. It's like, man, you ruined my best friend's life. You left us. This thing that God had called you to do, you just bolted and left. Like, we owe $80,000 because you went to the bank and got a loan for your um, paycheck. Like, you've never said you're sorry. And I said, I'm thinking I have to do a men's retreat with this anger in my heart towards you. And he would give me his spill. And part of that church, man, I, I, I also, because it was so small, I helped count the money. And there was a single girl, a single mom, her name was Shannon. And every week she would put 10 bucks in. She would write a check for 10 bucks. It was her tithe. And I told this guy, I said, here's, here's the thing I got to ask. Like, here's the question I got to know. I was like, Miss Walls' tithe, it's $10 a week. Like, are you were you worth that in your paycheck? It's like, were you worth that? Because in my mind, I'm like, I'm paying my tithe, like I'm doing what the word says. I'm giving, I'm praying, I'm fasting, and I'm I'm paying for this man to go have an affair and to ruin people's lives. Like in my mind, that's how this thing was working. And I'm not going to tell you how he answered the question. Right? But I want you to listen to me here. Somewhere along the line, man, you got to decide where you stand when this stuff happens. You got to decide. I'm going to walk you through, man. I'm going to walk you through something because here's the thing. Like if you want to give to to the more initiative because you think we're going to plant more churches, what happens if we don't? Or if you want to give to the MORE initiative because you think we're going to baptize 200 people next next year, what happens if we don't? Does it stop you from giving? What happens in your prayer life? Like when you pray, 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 and it doesn't happen. Does it stop you from praying? What happens when you're fasting? When you fast for something that you know God's going to do, like you know it's for His glory, and He doesn't do it. Does it stop you? May I add to you that if you're doing those things for some reasons, that's called idol worship, and it will own you in the end. It's why we can't really have a conversation about money or fasting because they're symptoms of something greater. And if you got your Bibles with me, man, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because we got to know, we've we got to preach for our joy here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Here's what it says Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Now, let me just kind of walk you through this. This is Paul teaching, all right? Like, if you're familiar with Paul, he walked bow-legged. He did some crazy stuff. He's writing a letter to the Corinthian church that was plagued with problems. Like, you think that I've walked you through some bad stuff in four years, you ought to see some of the stuff that he wrote to these guys, right? Just as bad, even worse. Like, the church has always had problems because it's been made up of people. What I want to do is teach you how you walk. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Let's talk through this for a second. Like, if you guys been following that series AD at all? Like, if you noticed on the second episode of it, they had like 10 or 20 lambs just laid out. And there was blood everywhere. And they were scooping it up and pouring it on the wall. Like in Paul's mind, Paul understood what it meant to fear the Lord. We don't have time for a whole sermon series, but here's the disconnect for us is that we don't understand this. Like we don't understand the sacrifice or the dying of animals or the spilling of blood to atone for our sins. Like we don't get it because we don't see it every day. And so let me just kind of bring you up into the Western context of how this works. On Easter Sunday, man, we're sitting here and we're baptizing some people. I got some towels out. I noticed this girl just weeping. Like she's in her mid-20s. She's just weeping. I'm like, man, it's Easter Sunday and we're baptizing people, but yet you're weeping. So I sat down and said, hey, talk to me. Tell me what's up. She said, I'm miserable. She said, I'm miserable at home. I'm miserable in my job. She said, I'm miserable here. Now, the back here is I've had three conversations with her, right? She knows the Lord is tugging on her heart. He's pulling on her all the time. And my last conversation with her was in John 3 when he says, It's time for you to take the leap. It's time for you to trust Jesus with your life. I was like, How are we doing there? She's like, Not good. And her exact words were, I just can't jump. I just can't jump. And without even thinking about it, here's what goes through my head. It just comes out. I'm like, I hope you get the chance to. And before I could even move, she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, here's what the word says. The word says that apart from Christ, there is no life. And in fact, it goes so far as to call us objects of wrath. Like when the Lord looks at us, he doesn't see Jesus then he sees wrath. And when he sees wrath, it's like he can't see that. And then the word talks about him being a consuming fire and that it will just burn up in that. Now, here's the thing. I'm not the author and perfecter of salvation, so I don't get into that. But I would say, man, that doesn't look good. Paul says, therefore, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, for us to continue to be our own God, for us not to submit to the authority of the creator of the world. He's like, since we know what it is to live in this, He said, man, I I gotta move. He travels down a little further and he says, what we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Verse 12 again, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Let's pause in that. What's Paul saying to us? In Paul's story playing out here, like, like Paul's been beat almost to death five times. Like, if you go to Second Corinthians chapter ten, you can read the story. He says, "Listen, I, I've been whipped, I've been shipwrecked, I've been snake bit. I have no food, I have no clothing, I have no shelter." I am fear for my life from both the Jew and the Gentile. I constantly worry about the churches. Like, that's Paul. He says, I received the 40 lashes minus one five times. Now, let's, let's talk through that. In this story, like, here's how this works, is that you would rise up on a pedestal. They would put your feet up on a the pedestal. They would bend you over. They would chain your arms, and they would whip you 13 times. If you changed your mind about what you had done to to get there, like if you changed your course of talk, they would stop. If you chose not to, they would whip you 13 more. Then they would come back in and say, hey, if you quit saying this stuff, if you quit doing these deeds, we'll quit. If you chose not to, they would whip you 13 more times. 13, 13, 13, 40 minus 1, 39 lashes. It was said that most people couldn't survive these, and he survived it five times. What's more so is that after you got whipped because of the way that your legs kept tensing up is that you would walk bow-legged for the rest of your life. And that's historically how Paul walked, right? And so what he's saying to them is like, listen, my heart has been transformed in such a way where I used to hate you, like I used to hate you, like I hated Jesus, I hated all the followers of the way. One day I'm on this road and the Lord appears to me and he totally rewires my heart. Like he totally rewires me to the point where I can't hate people anymore. Apart from the gospel, apart from the gospel, and you know this to be true, is that life is all about us. Like it's all about me. It's my home. It's my time. It's my car. It's my retirement. It's my job. It's my money. It's my 401k. It's mine, mine, mine. And here's how we know is that some some of us even choose our church based on this. And what Paul's saying is like, listen, look at me. Look how at one point I was the worst of the worst. Like I, I, I was standing there the moment that Stephen got stoned and I gave my approval. Like I went to the synagogues and I got letters to kill men, women, and children. Anybody who went across the synagogues and the Pharisees. Remember I was trained by Gamaliel. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was wealthy and rich and a Roman citizen and all these things. And I hated Jesus and I hated the followers of the way to the point where I would kill them. But the Lord has transformed my heart. And so Paul goes on and he says, why is this? He says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. If we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul's making a declaration here. You remember when he stood in front, of, in front of Festus? Festus said, Paul, you are beside yourself, which is our translation, for you're out of your mind, meaning you're crazy. That's why they have it in parentheses in your word. And so what Paul is doing is saying, listen, if you think I'm crazy, then know that I'm crazy for God. But if you think that I'm in my right mind, know that the reason that I do all of this is for you. You, the reason I'm shipwrecked, bit by snakes, 40 lashes minus one, fear from the Gentiles, fear from the Jews, no place to sleep, nothing to eat, constant on the run for my life. No, if you think I'm in my right mind, that it is for you. Why? Like, why does Paul do all this for people? This man who once hated them, why does he do all this for them? Because the answer that he gives is the answer that you must give every time that you do anything. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. For Christ's love compels us that all men matter. He's like, here's the story. Like, you know me. Like, like I hated you. But because of what Jesus has done in my life, man, I cannot help but love you. Because I know that you are no mere man and woman. That the creator of the universe has done something special. And that he wants you to know that he's come after you. And he said, and because of this, he goes, there's no more sense in living for yourself Like, watch my life. Like, I give my life in service to you because Christ's love compels me. That's why he says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Like, Paul's like, I used to see you as dogs, but I don't see you that way. Because if he can take my life and totally transform it, how much more yours? And this was this love in Christ that was in him that compelled him to do these things. Why am I so passionate about telling you this? It's because if you give for any other reason than the Christ's love compelling you, it will own you. If you serve for any other reason than Christ's love compelling you, then it will own you. If you make coffee or donuts and do it for any other reason than Christ's love compelling you, it will own you. The only motivation, man, that we have for doing anything is that Christ's love compels us. We press on. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. He said, I used to think Jesus was a joke. Now I know that he's the savior of the world. I used to think, man, that I had all the answers and I realized that I had none. And I used to think that people's lives didn't matter, and now I realize that everyone's life matters because Jesus has totally rewired my eyes. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Amen? Amen? I align with this so much because when I turned 24, I had messed up a lot of things. If you've been born again, you know, man, sometimes you look back and you see it. But what Christ says is, man, it's like, that's done. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, not counting people's sins against them. He just summed up all of Hebrews and Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 in that one verse. Here's what he said We did nothing for this, like we did nothing for him. Like heaven's champion came after us and we did nothing for it. It was because of his great love for us and knowing that we'd been created for so much more that he chased us down and came after us. And he said, this is not of you so that no man can boast about what God has done. He's the only God in the world who has chased his people down and told them, I have given you this. Like I have come for you. He says, I gave you this ministry of reconciliation. Like he started it. Now, if you miss something, don't, don't miss this. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are compelled to do this for others. Like, if you walk around with hatred towards your brother or unforgiveness in your heart, it's a sign that you understand grace in your head and maybe so not much in your heart, right? It means that on an intellectual basis, you could explain Jesus and grace, but on a heart piece, like you, you've never had it. And so it says in this that he started the process of reconciliation by coming towards us and not counting our sins against us. In that, man, we have to return the favor. Like, this is how we get set apart from everybody else, is that the love of Christ compels us to forgive. It compels us to walk away from people who throw rocks at us. It compels us. It compels us to always be open to reconciliation. Why? Because it's only then that you smell like Christ— Like It's like you're a picture of him in the world, like he's ministering to people through you because of what you can do, only because the love of Christ compels you. And that's exactly what he says in verse 20. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, a.k.a. Ephesians 1. We did nothing for this. We moved from being a child of wrath to a child of his righteousness, to an extension of his grace into the world. Why? Because Christ came for us and decided not to commit our sins against us, but yet gave his blood in this. This makes sense? Verse 6, as God's co-worker, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Verse 2, 4, he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In this room, man, there's two people. There's those who, are, who know Christ, and there's those of you who may not. Here's what he says. I tell you that now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of his salvation. Here's what we want to finish up. Man, if you don't know Christ, then fear of the Lord is a terrifying thing for you. And it should be. But man, he's done so much. Like you get this story all the time. People are like, man, why does the loving God send me to hell? Here's the deal. He's done so much not to. He's done so much not to. The way this story plays out, man, is like I picked up the phone. I called that guy. And I said man, are you worth that? Are you worth the tithes and the offerings that we paid for you to go do what you did? And here's his response. Yes. Like at some level he's accurate and at some level he was blinded by his pride. Here's the thing. If I look at that and it stops me from growing up, like if I look at him and say, man, this is what it looks like to follow Christ and I'm done, I quit, I throw in the towel, guess where I'm at? The same place I was in 2005. Like I never move. And so my heart for you is, man, you can't live Christianity based on somebody else. Not me, not Curtis, not Matt, not mom and dad. Like Christianity has to be owned by you. And whatever God says for you, man, is what we got to do. Otherwise you just get stuck. It's your moment, not anybody else's. Like, I look back and I saw the Lord build me up and grow me up and say, I will not live that way. Like, I will be a man who carries myself well. Like, I want to be the aroma of Jesus. And somewhere along the line, man, you got to go with me. Like, this is how it plays out because if you allow somebody else to tell you how you walk this out, man, you will get stuck based on their decisions. Man, if I can plead with you, I want you to be able to stand up. I want you to be able to finish the race. And if you do it for any other reason than the love of Christ compelling you, you will stop. You will quit walking. I'm telling you, I know this. I've watched it a hundred times. You will walk down a road that seems good that'll turn into idol worship and you'll get burnt out and you're like, I can't finish the race. But when it's the love of Christ that compels you, man, you can do anything. Anything. And you will, because you'll know that it's him who's asking you to do it. The Lord doesn't want you to pray and fast for his own good. He wants to do that so it aligns your will with his. That's for bringing you joy. He doesn't want you to tithe or to give because he needs your money or new city. He wants you to do it because he doesn't want money to own you. Like, that's, it's that simple. Like he's like, I own the money. I don't want it owning you. And so I want you to be generous with your heart. It's why Paul does these things, man. He's like the love of Christ compels me to see life in a whole new way. And this is the call, man. This is what we do. So, man, I would ask you, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with those cards so that money doesn't own you? What are you going to do with your prayer and fasting life, man, so that your will will align with God's? Man, you want a true story? The first year I'm here, April of 2011 to April 2012, I felt like the Lord had did an all-out war on my hopes and dreams. Like, that's what I thought. I'm like, this is like a war on me. We had just finished paying off some apartments, man. We had a cash cow coming in. For the first time in my life, I'm like, dude, we can go buy a new truck if we want to. And the next thing you know, like, we're, we're, we're leaving all that stuff behind to move. I'm like, I was going to stop working at the age of 50 like I was going to quit doing these things. I'm like, Lord, you've called me to do something different, and it feels like a war on my life. Like, it will feel like it is a war on your dreams, I'm telling you. But I will tell you, nothing compares to watching people's homes get put back together. Like, that little cabin in the woods doesn't compare. When Michael Maul decides, man, that Christ loves him and has forgiven him for the things that he's done. It doesn't compare, man, making friends at Arbor Square. Like, it doesn't compare. Like, his ways are so much higher. And so, let it be an all out war on your dreams. Let the love of Christ compel you to do something different. Don't buy into it. Even as much as Easter, I was sitting there going in my head, going, Man, I'm 11 years away from a dream that I had. And then I listen to people tell story after story about what Jesus has done in their life. And it doesn't compare. Man, following Christ is a narrow road. I'm telling you, he says, you come on it. It may cause you to suffer, but you will find your joy in it. You will find it. I'm telling you, I've got so much joy in my heart. It's what makes me preach like this. I want you to be able to stand. I want you to be able to stand up. Stand up in it love of Christ compel you and to love people that are unlovable and to do things that are extraordinary for no other reason than the love of Christ compelling us. Amen? Father, you are good. I praise your name. Father, I lift up all these souls to you in this room. Lord, I would ask that we don't just walk out the door, but that we apply it if there's anything in our head on why we do whatever we do that's robbing our identity, that's stealing our joy, that's causing us to be burnt out, Father, I would ask that we stop doing it and replace it with the love of Christ compelling us. Allowed Paul to take those 40 lashes minus one and to shipwreck, Lord, cause us to leave the things that we thought would make us happy to find our joy in you. Lord, may the love of Christ compel us in our prayer life, in our fasting and our giving of the poor. We do these things for no other reason than the love of you. God, you are good. And everyone in this house said,